difficult sayings of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. Um, and if you have a Bible, turn there with me. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's found in the bulletin. It will be on the screen as well. I'm going to read, read to us the passage, and let's listen together. And from here, from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came out and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table um, eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ear. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Aphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage today really is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. It's one of those passages that, frankly, I would just rather skip uh, because of how difficult it is. And one of the signs, though, that we're going to see today, and, and one of the things that I want us to take away from this passage ultimately is this, that one of the signs that the gospel is taking root in your heart and your life is that the, the more humbled person, the, uh, the more um, timid person becomes bold, and the bold person becomes humble. And that when the gospel takes root in your life, you see those two things really blossoming, both boldness and humility. And we see great boldness and great humility in this woman's life. Ben Wetherington, the great commentator, says this, this, this story that we just read, on its surface, bristles with features that are not politically correct. Definitely. <laughs> Jesus calls a woman a dog. He suggests that foreigners have no right to eat at the same table as Jews, or at least that Jews, God's chosen people, must be fed first. Now, while this story is a hard saying, as we delve into it, believe it or not, at the end of it, we're going to see two things. First is the beauty of this woman's faith, her boldness, her humility. But secondly, you'll see how good Jesus is at the end of this story as well. Now, who would be offended by this story besides us today in our politically correct nature? The Gentiles, of course, right? He calls them puppies, literally, in the, in the original language, or dogs. They would be offended. But who is Mark's audience that he's writing to? The different gospel writers had different audiences in view. Matthew, for example, is a more Jewish audience. Mark's is a Gentile audience. So who would be offended by this story? Mark's 
audience would be offended by this story. So what do you think Mark would be thinking as he's sitting down with Peter and, and we're going over Jesus's life and Mark is writing down copious notes in order to write out this gospel's uh, narrative. And, and as he's sitting with Peter and Peter tells him the story about the Syrophoenician woman and what Jesus said to him, uh, or said to her, you can imagine that in Mark's mind, he might have said, yeah, we may skip this one. <laughs> I'm trying to get the gospel to Gentile people, to a non-Jewish audience. You say, well, how do you know that? So, for example, in last week's uh, passage, when we're talking, uh, he says, he stops to tell us, by the way, the Jews wash their hands and clean the pots, right? So you don't have to tell Jewish people that, like, duh, that's what we do. So it's a Gentile audience that he has in view. He would have been so tempted to not include this story, saying, I want them to come to Jesus, not be offended by Jesus. So why did he include this in his gospel? Because he's a faithful narrator. And Mark gathered all the oral traditions about Jesus with Peter, and he could have skipped this, but he doesn't. And I want, to speak, I want this to speak to our minds and our hearts. Let this sink in. Why, why wouldn't he skip this over? Why did he include it? Because he was faithful to write this thing down. The gospel is tr trustworthy. Mark's gospel is trustworthy. If, as some say, the gospel writers were simply mythologizing, why would you include material that might be highly offensive and misunderstood by the very audience you're trying to reach? You would just skip it. If you were making this stuff up or if you're trying to craft and, and you know, make a political message for Jesus and, and, and market him well, you would skip this. But that's not Mark's uh, intent. He's faithful. Especially when at this time, Gentiles, Romans, were putting Christians to death. He's faithful to give us an accurate report. There's only one reason there's only one reason that Mark would have included this in his passage and, and not skipped over it is, is it actually happened and that everything that is in Mark's gospel actually happened and you can trust in this. So obviously the big question is this, was Jesus being prejudiced or is he being racist when he says this? Now, whenever you look at any difficult passage in any text, but particularly the Bible, it's important to interpret it in light of the entire context. And so uh, the Bible as a whole should be gone after to interpret anything in, in a particular manner. So, for example, the Bible as a whole helps us to interpret the meaning of its individual parts. So if you're reading something that you're having difficulty interpreting, in, in, in one section, look in the general context around you in that book and ask yourself, how does it help me interpret this? And then if you don't find the context there, you widen it and go to the rest of the New Testament and rest of the, the, the entire Old Testament as well, the entire Bible, and find context to interpret what you're trying to interpret. But really, the context of Mark itself and even the passage that we just read last week that came right before it gives us enough context in order to help us understand what's happening here a little bit more. First of all, right away, notice that Jesus intentionally went to the Gentiles. He previously went on a missionary journey, right? Crossing the sea at, at night, arriving, and, and the demon-possessed man, he sets free and then sends him out to be a witness to these things, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He gets up and leaves his own country and goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon himself. And so this is about 40 miles north of Galilee. It's in modern-day Lebanon. 
It's in Gentile, Gentile territory. And so he intentionally leaves the comforts of Israel and he goes to a Gentile area. And while Jesus certainly sounds snarky in his dialogue with this lady, he is purposely traveling to a Gentile region to put himself there on mission. He's crossing geographic boundaries. Jews just didn't go there. Think of modern day Palestine. He's crossing religious boundaries. They're pagans. And he's crossing cultural boundaries. Men don't talk to women. Women don't talk to men. So what do we know about Jesus so far as it relates to Gentiles in the Gospel of Mark? Up to this point, like, you know, what have we learned about Jesus and Gentiles? For last week, we saw that everything that the religious leaders of that day had declared as unclean, Jesus keeps touching those things. The stuff you're never supposed to touch, Jesus keeps touching. He touches people with unclean spirits. You're not supposed to do that. That makes you unclean. He touches a leper with his disease and heals him. That makes you unclean. He touches a dead body to heal that person and bring that that daughter back to life. That would make him unclean. And in the previous chapter, he has opened up and declared all foods as clean, even bacon. Praise God. So the entire thrust of Mark up to this point is undoing, Jesus undoing all the preconceived notions about what makes someone unclean. The Jews are not in in and of themselves clean, and the Gentiles are not in and of themselves especially dirty. But instead, what Jesus told us last week is uncleanness and defilement is something inside of you, right? Are the Gentiles defiled? Yes. But are the Jews defiled? Yes, we are all defiled apart from the grace of God. We all have brokenness, sinfulness, selfishness, etc. And so defilement is a matter of the heart. It's not outward. This is the whole thrust of the gospel of Mark up to this point. This is the whole message Mark has been showing us about Jesus. So it just doesn't make sense in the flow of this gospel for all of a sudden for Jesus to go, you are particularly uh, gross to me or unclean. You're a dog. We also know that when Jesus sent the disciples with the Great Commission, that he sent them with the gospel for all people in the entire world. So we need this concept, uh, context to help us understand this conversation, this difficult conversation that Jesus has with this woman. And there's also so much we can learn from this woman, the Syrophoenician. The disciples in the Gospel of Mark consistently don't get it. Have you noticed that? And same with the other, uh, the other Gospels. Like, they constantly don't get it. They're constantly just scratching their head. Like, they're confused about the loaves and the fish. In fact, it says their hearts are hardened. Mark just said that. And so he, Mark is not setting up the disciples well, but he does set up this Gentile woman very, very well. She's the one who gets it. She comes to Jesus and... Um, and, 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 uh, and, and she says, look, my, my, my daughter is, has this, um, this demon. She's the only person in the Gospel of Mark to call Jesus Lord, a Gentile woman. And she's both humble and bold. And this is what I want us to see this morning. Temperamentally, we find people who seem more humble, uh, timid, introverted perhaps, shy, and on the, on the exterior, they can, seem a very, they can seem very humble, even though it's, it's more of a matter of personality. 
And other people are very, very bold, very, very brash, very, very outward, right? And so, and this is personality. This is hardwired into who they are and, and how God has created them. There are introverts and there are extroverts. There are people pleasers and there's hard chargers. There's feelers, there's thinkers. And it's rare to find someone who's both extremely bold and also truly humble. And yet she is. Look at her boldness. She knew that women were not allowed to approach a rabbi, but it doesn't stop her. She goes right to him. She had a need, of course. Her daughter is filled with an unclean spirit, a demon. And so she, she goes, but she's desperate as a parent. And if you're in a place of desperation as a parent, you will stop at nothing to help your child. She's bold, but look at her humility. She came to Jesus and fell at his feet. She humbled herself before him, having heard of his power over darkness, over evil, probably having heard of what happened to the man in the graveyard who was filled with a legion of demons, right? And he's released, and then he goes out as a, as a witness to Jesus and his power. Perhaps that's how she heard about it. She begs him to cast out the demon, and then she, he then shocks us with his reply, and he says to her, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs or the puppies. In our culture today, there are people who love dogs, right? I'm one of those people. <laughs> when I get up in the morning, often what I do is I turn, uh, after sometimes the news, I will turn to Instagram. <laughs> this is embarrassing to tell you. And I look at, at videos of dogs and puppies. And one of the things that I do is it's like I send something cute or funny of a dog and I send it to my son Carter who's in college who also has this huge soft heart towards dogs and puppies. And we ping each other back with videos about dogs and puppies. So I get it. I am a dog person. Uh, I take my dog on a long walk every morning and I interact with all the other uh, dog people who are up early and out walking their dogs. And I have to say, we're really kind of a weird group of people. And we like to say that cat people are weird, but can we admit also dog people, like we're, we're weird too. We treat our dogs like they are our children. <laughs> we give them human names. Our dog is named Molly. Many of you are named Molly. It's a weird thing. Like when you come to our house, like what's your dog's name? It's your name. <laughs> We give them human names. We assign human emotion and characteristics. But they do have a way of reminding us that they're dogs, don't they? Like, I won't get into the details, but there's a few things I could go to. Just today, as I was out walking my dog, my dog is really nice. She is temperamentally really sweet. She doesn't, has never met another human she doesn't like or another dog, and she just wags her tail, and she's very diminutive and humble and cowering and so forth. But we came across another dog that is not, and it was bred for fighting, and it's an intense dog breed and a very intense dog individually. The dog was almost as big as the woman, and she's got this thing on a chain, and she's like holding it back as it's literally trying to attack my dog. And the whole time she's going, okay, baby girl, okay, baby girl. It's like, that's not a baby girl. That's a little lion that's about to destroy somebody, right? It's an animal. But we, just, we give it human emotion and we treat it like it's our children. But in that culture, I, I get the sense that there were fewer dog people. <laughs> and so he is using the language that your average Israelite 
in his, you know, his contemporary setting would have used for a Gentile. He calls her a dog or a puppy. But again, Jesus is intentionally traveled to be there. So what's going on? As usual, he's speaking in a parable, a story, like the children should come first. And in the end, though, he heals her daughter and he shows his real heart in his coming kingdom. The dogs become children in God's redemptive plan for the world. So he's using this highly offensive term, though we can't get around it, but perhaps there's a tone in his voice or a twinkle in his eye. Perhaps he's being sarcastic in the way he says this to her, using the phrase that everyone else is using because he is about to pronounce her daughter healed. In the parable, he says, though, there is an order to things, and we know this from Jesus' ministry. Jesus came first for the Jewish people, to whom God chose his people, and he blessed the world through the Messiah, through Christ, through the Jewish people. But the gospel was not only for Israel. It was for the whole world. And we see that even throughout the Old Testament, God had a missional heart for the entire world. The people of Israel were meant to be on mission, uh, to be a light to the world and to invite the nations in. And even though they did not get that, God's heart begins with the people of Israel, but then the gospel moves out from them again to the world, making them a missional people. In the parable, he says there's an order to things, and Jesus came first to the Jews, but then his plan was for the gospel to go to the whole world. I came for the children and, and the puppies, but she comes right back at him with amazing understanding. What does she do? This Gentile woman is the first person in Mark to understand a parable so quickly. Again, Mark is setting up this woman as, a, as really a hero and the disciples as the one who are slow and don't get it. So she's the first one to interpret a parable like that and go, yes, but she comes right back at him. But she says, Lord, even the puppies eat too. They get the crumbs that fall under the table and Jesus is moved by her statement, and he heals her daughter. Tim Keller, the pastor in New York and great author, says this. Jesus told her a parable. He gives her a challenge and an offer. And she says, I'm not supposed to be at the table. I get it. Okay. I'm unworthy. I accept that. So she's humble, but she's also bold. She basically says this. There is more than enough on that table for the whole world. And I want some of that from of what is on that table. This isn't boldness for her rights. She isn't saying, I'm coming on the basis of my goodness. No, she says, I'm coming on the basis of your goodness. She completely accepts her unworthiness. I'm not saying, give me what I deserve on the basis of my righteousness, my goodness, or what I've earned. She says, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your righteousness, on the basis of your goodness, on the basis of your mercy. And it's beautiful. This pagan woman, this Gentile woman, this, this woman who seems outside of the kingdom gets the gospel. She gets the kingdom while so many people within Israel of that day, including the pastors and priests of the day, don't get the kingdom. In Matthew 15, Matthew fills in a little more detail, and he says this. He says, Jesus told her after, after this comment, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. So what does this mean for us? We saw last week that both our problem 
is inward, and the solution to our problem is inward. Our problem is a heart issue, and the solution to our problem is a heart issue. We aren't made unclean by what's outside of us, but out of the heart comes issues of uncleanness. We saw this last week. Jesus talks about lust and anger and murderous hearts and these things. Everything that makes us unclean comes out of our heart. But thanks be to God, God gives us a new heart. When we come to him in faith, when we trust in him, when we put our hope in him, he gives us a brand new heart, a heart that begins to beat spiritually and begins, even if it's ever so faint, to love him more, to love our neighbor more than ourselves, to want to glorify God more and more. And man, do I wish that was perfected instantly, but it's not. It begins in small ways as our hearts begin to say, I'm tired of selfishness and I'm tired of living in a sinful manner. I'm tired of living in rebellion against God. And then God begins to give in us a new heart where we desire his ways, his will, his law, the fruit of the spirit instead of the fruit of the flesh. And even though we continue to stumble and fall and live for ourselves, the spirit keeps calling us to a better way and saying, follow me, love me, walk with me. He gives us a new birth, a new heart. And one of the signs that the gospel is taking root in our heart is that we see ourselves being like this woman, becoming more bold and humble at the same time. And this is what the gospel does. When I read the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. I want to pick the one that I'm good at and say, look, the, the Spirit, look what the Spirit did. But that's not the way to look at the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's not the fruits. It's not like, oh, I like grapes and I like bananas, but I don't care for, you know, kumquats or whatever. So it's like I get to skip those things. No, it's like choose the area in which you you need to grow the most. That's where the Spirit will be producing life. Some of us uh, just are temperamentally joyful. We're just happy people. Like, but, But what about... Peace and patience, perhaps that's your struggle. The fruit of the Spirit. You see, as God begins to work in our life, if you're more timid, he makes you bold. And if you're more bold, he makes you more humble. And we see in this woman a boldness and a humility. So to simply believe you're a dog, so to speak, and to not see that you're a child of God who can come boldly to God on the basis of his goodness, like this woman, is to not live in line with the gospel. So to simply believe you're a dog, because some of you are temperamentally more humble. You're like, I get it. I feel like a dog every day. I live with shame. I live with guilt. I live with the sin in my past. I I live with the shame of what people have done to me. Uh, I get the dog part. I don't get the child part. And if that's you, if, if you live easily with humility, if you live easily in the, in the context of shame and, and, and beaten down and, and feeling like a dog, then you need to profoundly hear that the gospel calls you a child, a daughter, a son. Not just calls you that, makes you that. Whether you believe it or not, whether you can actualize it in your heart or not, it's an actuality. It's, it's just true of you. You have been adopted into the kingdom of God by the, the blood of the Son and His life and His death and His resurrection. It's just true of you. And so the more that you live in line with the gospel, you timid, 
humbled people by life, by your own decisions, by people's sin against you as well, you will learn to live in the light of the gospel, that I'm a child of God. On the other hand, <clears throat> some of you have no problem with boldness. And you come to God kind of with a, like, I demand my rights. I should get what I deserve right now. Like, why don't you give me what I want when I want it? Why, why are you so slow? Like, kind of this idea that God is like our cosmic Santa Claus and should just be out doing whatever we want and bidding, you know, like, hey, I asked you to do that and you haven't done that yet. Then the gospel makes you humble. You see more profoundly that you need to be humble before the holy God. This is another form of not living in line with the gospel. And you may bristle at Jesus' view of you. You have a defiled heart. That's what he told us last week. You were not born with a righteous heart. You were born because of the fall that happened in Genesis 3 with a, a broken heart, a fallen heart, a, a defiled heart, a heart that lives for itself, that has set yourself up as God. Be humbled before a living God. So living in light of the gospel makes us like this woman. Lord, I accept your plan and your assessment of me. Yes, I, I come to you, but I come to you boldly and I plead with you not on the basis of my goodness, my righteousness, my holiness, but on yours. You're the one that heals people. You're the one that's so kind that you release people from evil. She comes to him on the basis of Jesus' goodness. So my question for you this morning is this. Are you temperamentally more humble or bold? Do you see signs of both growing in your life? And, and usually, and what I'm really asking is this, is, is the gospel producing in, in the weak part? So if you're too bold, is the gospel making you humble? And if you're too humble, is the, God may, is the gospel making you more bold? In the next section of our text uh, about the healing of the mute and the deaf man, there is an allusion to Isaiah 35. And I want to read to you what, what Jesus is alluding to here. And it's this. In Isaiah 30, or the gospel, the gospel writer Mark, uh, he, in Isaiah 35, it says this. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. The deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking. And yet Israel at that time had it determined in their mind what the vengeance of the Lord and the day of recompense would look like. And to them, you probably know where I'm headed with this, they believed that God would come in judgment and bring vengeance and recompense upon the Romans, on the, this outside invader, these people that have come in and taken over their country. But instead, what we see is a, is a Messiah that they can't get their mind around because the vengeance actually doesn't fall on Rome and it doesn't even fall on Israel. It falls on the Son of God himself. The vengeance of God falls on God. Why? Because Jesus is not just fully God, he's fully man also, and he's come to be our representative as a human and, and our head, and he comes, and the, the vengeance of God, the judgment of God, everything that should happen to me because of my defilement, both by 
my inclinations, but also all of the choices I've made over my life that have been in rebellion against him. All that deserves his judgment, but where did it fall, friends? Where does it fall? Let this speak to your heart about Jesus. Where does it fall? It does not fall on Israel. It does not fall on Rome. It falls on the Son of God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus Christ, from the cross? Why is your vengeance upon me? Because in that moment, as Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, quoting the psalmist, why have you forsaken me? It's in that moment that the recompense of God, the judgment of God, the anger of God, it's falling on Jesus. He's receiving the just penalty of my sin and yours. So that it will never fall on you. Never. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the new has come, the old is gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How? Because the vengeance of God, it fell on Jesus so that it will never fall on you. Tim Keller said about this passage, Jesus became a dog that we may become children. And as a pastor, if I could give you one gift, and if I could give my own heart one gift that just would pervade your life for the rest of your life, it's that you would live into the reality that you're a child of God. And that your, your, your shame that we just sang about has been covered. Humility. We need some humility. Our sin is that bad. Jesus had to die the death that we deserved. It's that bad. We deserved what he got on the cross. But boldness, he loved us, many of us Gentiles, to the extent that he would become a dog so that we would be children. He became unclean that we might become clean. And so this morning, some of you are desperate. You're desperate with a need. You're desperate for the, the need of hope. You're desperate for the need of just to believe that, there, that God is, that there's any hope at all in your life or the world. Look at how good Jesus is. This beautiful story of this woman and what seems like such a horrible statement from him, I believe reveals, especially in context of the whole gospel, just how beautiful Jesus is, how good the gospel is, how loving, how kind, how gracious he is to him. So in humility, with boldness, go to him with your need. Our God is there to hear and to respond to the needs that you have. Go with boldness. Go with humility. Take it to him. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks. We give you great praise for Jesus. And even though this particular passage is difficult for us to understand and to fully grasp what your son meant to say, Father, we thank you for the beauty of this woman's faith. We thank you for what we've learned from this. And I pray for my friends that we go from this place with more boldness, believing that we are your children, with a heart that is always humbled towards you, understanding that you are God and we are not. You're the sovereign one. You are the creator. We are the creation. But Lord, make us bold as your children to go to your throne room. You invite us in. You call us in. Because not only are you king, you're our father, our good father, our Abba father, our daddy, and you invite us in. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.